Good morning, Hope Point and friends of Hope Point. I don't know where you're watching from today, maybe with your family in your home, or maybe you've been part of a watch party. Some people are doing that. Several families are getting together for watch parties now, or maybe you're in another country, in another part of the world. We, will, we welcome you. And I think what I'm so excited about the service today and this plea that is in all of our hearts for national unity, global a cry for a, a, a global unifying of the world through Christ. I think you're going to appreciate more than ever to see how kind God is to bring us as a church through Ephesians 4, 4 through 6, a passage dedicated to unity when that is the great message and need of the world. Would you pray with me? Father, we, we thank you for the wonder of Scripture. It amazes us. We marvel over and over again how the very word we need for our souls is given to us from God. And so now we open wide our mouths and we want to feast and drink and eat of the blessedness, the joy, the life-giving sustenance of the word of God. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. In our time together in last week's study, we read the words of the Apostle Paul where he gave us seven realities that form the base of our unity together, a God-glorifying unity within the church. I want to read those verses to you again. Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called, to one hope. When you were called, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, and one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. So in our time together last week, we covered six of these seven ones. And so we come together today to look at the last unifying component that binds us together, which is the providential workings of God that we would experience him fully by the way he arranges all sorts of details and events and people in our lives. I'm going to give you a definition of providence that you're going to see worked out in today's teaching. Providence is the continuous activity of God by which he preserves and governs the world. It is his watchfulness over things that seem insignificant and even accidental in order to accomplish his good purposes in our lives. Today, I want you to see the providence of God, how he led two men together, one black, one white, Will Ford and Matt Lockett, together in January of 2005 in a story at the Lincoln Memorial in Washington, D.C., brought them together in a way that changed their lives forever. So in just a moment, I'm going to show you a video testimony of their remarkable story of God's providential work in their life. But it starts at the 16-minute mark. So 16 minutes in, Will Ford is talking about the descendants in his life who were slaves from Lake Providence, Louisiana. And he begins by referring to an iron kettle that was significant in their praying. And I'm going to let him talk more about that iron kettle. But I want to tell you a little bit about the praying of slaves in this time. They were forbidden to pray. 
They were persecuted for praying, punished for praying. They were punished for reading the Bible. They were not allowed to learn how to read. There were laws against teaching slaves how to read. Slave owners didn't want to do anything that would strengthen the hope of slaves. They wanted them to be Christians because Christian slaves made better workers. But they didn't want them to have hope, and therefore they didn't want them to pray. But despite the incredible mistreatment and abuse, beatings, and even death that the population, slave population endured, many of them turned to God in prayer. Now, Will Ford is going to reference the praying of generations of slaves in this talk. And he mentions how all of our prayers together are added to the prayers that are already lifted up to God in heaven. And he makes that statement by referring to Revelation 5, 8 and 8, 4. And I just put those verses together for you. It says they were holding God's people in heaven were, or, or the, the celestial beings in heaven were holding the prayers of God's people. Those beings were holding golden bowls full of the prayers of all God's people. Bowls full of the prayers of the people of God in front of the throne of God on an altar. And you'll hear Will Ford in this testimony pleading with us to add to the prayers that have already been made to God through the generations after generations. One other thing that will help you enjoy his part of the talk, he uses the Greek word poema in describing what God wants to do in our life. And he bases it on Ephesians 2.10. We are God's workmanship or his poema uh, from which we get our word poem, God's masterpiece. God is writing a story, a song, a poem through your life. And he's using all matter of providence to bring about the beautiful story that he has longed to work in you and through you from the beginning of time. So with all of that said, let's look at the providential poem, the masterpiece that God has written in the lives of these two men. But listen, these folks were Christians. The ones who hold this pot, they were Christians during this time period, and they decided to pray anyway. So what they would do is they'd go into a barn late at night on the plantation, as the story is told, go into that barn late at night to make sure their prayer meeting wasn't seen. But to make sure that it wasn't heard, they used this pot. This is the very pot that they used. They would go in and they would take the pot and tur turn it upside down and then prop it up with rocks. Why? They would use it to muffle their voices. So they would then get on the ground and lay flat on the ground and put their lips in between the opening between the ground and the kettle so that the kettle pot muffled their voices as they prayed through the night. And the story that was passed down with the pot is this, is that they didn't think they would see freedom in their time. So they prayed for the freedom of their children and the next generation. Yeah, we can clap for that. That's amazing. There was this young teenage girl at the time who used to sneak into those prayer meetings who heard those people praying. And all of a sudden, she's the one that freedom falls on. We don't know what her name is, but she decided to keep this pot and that story in our family. Now, why would she do that? She's probably thinking about all those who are dead and gone, who risked their lives to pray for her. She's probably thinking about all those who are too old to enjoy the freedom she's about to embrace. 
and she keeps this pot and this story in our family. And she passed the pot and the story down to Harriet Lockett. Harriet Lockett passed it on to Noah Lockett. Noah Lockett passed it on to William Ford Sr., who then passed it on to William Ford Jr., who then gave it to me, William Ford III. So I'm there at this conference. I'm listening to this man talk about prayer, agreeing with the prayers of those who've gone before us. And I remember this kettle pot in my family. I thought, oh my God, to whom much is given, much is required. I realized my responsibility, that I had to take up the responsibility to be an intercessor for this generation. Listen, I'm not the only one. God has given us the new charge right now to be the ones that will contend in prayer for the freedom of this next generation in deeper ways than we know. So, but then I thought about also this, I thought about the privilege, oh my God, I get to agree with the prayers of my Christian forefathers for the freedom of this next generation. I thought about the exponential results that could be released and created from that. So my friend Dutch Sheets and I, we began to talk, and it turned into this prayer journey that we wanted to do uh, called the Kettle Tour. And Dutch said, you know, we, I was praying, asking God for confirmation to see if, God, you really want me to take some 200-year-old cast iron cooking pot around the country to represent the prayer bowls in heaven? Listen, they just use this as an acoustic means to muffle their voice. But listen, Revelation 5 and 8 says there's a prayer bowl in heaven that catches our prayers like incense. Listen, there's a prayer bowl over your family. There's a prayer bowl over Norcross. There's a prayer bowl over Atlanta. There's a prayer bowl over this nation. God's looking for a new generation to resource the prayer bowls once again. He said, God, you really want me to use this pot to represent that in this prayer journey, prayer journey we're going to go on? He said, he had his Bible with His Bible falls open to Zechariah 14 and 20, which says, the part B verse, part P of the section says, and the cooking pots in the house of the Lord. <laughs> so it'd be like the bowls before the altar. So here's this cooking pot that's called muffled prayers, the same way there's a bowl in heaven that catches up prayers like incense. Then Dutch said this to me, he said, wouldn't it be just like God in his justice and irony that use the prayers of a slave generation to free a nation up for revival again? Yeah, I'm glad he said generation because it wasn't just black Christian slaves praying back then. They were also white Christian abolitionists. Who that if, if, if any person was a slave, was a Christian, they knew that person was their brother. Many of those white abolitionists had their houses burned. Many of them, had their, many of them were, were shot, they were killed, they were lynched because they chose to suffer with the people of God rather than compromise and wink at slavery. And think about it, it was the prayers of that godly remnant that prayed into being the first and the second great awakening. Had it not been for those revivals, slavery would have never ended in this nation. There was a Supreme Court law back then called Dred Scott which said that slaves had no rights in a courtroom. But because God sent revival, that law got broken in the hearts of people. That's why I'm daring to believe, listen, the same God who broke the power of Dred Scott, listen, he can break the power of Roe v. Wade. He can put an end to systemic poverty. He can stop our schools from being a pipeline to prison. He can shut down mass incarceration. He can shut down the, the opiate crisis that's going on in the suburbs right now, the crack houses in the inner city. He's just looking for a new generation of people who will drop their agendas once again and come together and believe. The Lord said something to me during that time that was so profound. I was in prayer and he said this to me. He said, William, if I heard the silent whispers of slaves underneath kettle pots, how much more so do you hear the silent screams of babies being aborted in your nation? I thought, oh my God, I realized that the litmus test for authentic revival in that day was the ending of slavery. The litmus test for authentic revival today will be the transformation of a heart that's so powerful it'll bring about the ending of abortion in our nation. That's what I realized. 
and it's more connected to race issues than we realize. I began to understand that when the child in the womb, and in other words, when the people that we cannot see become optional, it's inevitable that some of the people that we can see will be marginalized to the place of elimination. In other words, the same God who wept over the shedding of the innocent blood in Dayton, Ohio, and in El Paso, is the same God who wept over the shedding of the innocent blood of Alton, uh, Philando Castile. He's the same God who wept over the five police officers that were killed in Dallas, and he sweeps over 60 million babies that have been aborted in this nation. So God started speaking to me about this new civil rights movement that he wanted to bring about in this hour through revival that included everybody. And he did this through this dream that he gave me about the dreamer, Martin Luther King. Just so happened I was on my way to a reconciliation service at uh, Dexter Avenue Baptist Church where Dr. King started the, the civil rights movement. But, but the night before we had the service, I had a dream about the dream of Dr. King. In the dream, I'm on my way to Dexter Avenue Baptist Church, but I had to first go pick up Dr. King to, to get there. This is kind of a side note. There's some things we had to pick up from our past so we can move forward in the right direction. In the dream, we go by this house to pick up Dr. King. Of course, it's a dream, so he's alive. And it, he comes out of this house, but before he gets into the vehicle with us, he has this huge white duffel bag with him with black handles on it. And he starts emptying all this garbage out of that duffel bag. Then he throws the bag down violently and he comes to get into this vehicle with us. And in the dream, I thought to myself, man, that bag can make a nice souvenir. And so y'all carnal I am, right? Even in my dreams. I'm thinking, I went to Morehouse College, he went to Morehouse College. The bag can make a nice souvenir. But before I could go over to pick up the baggage, Dr. King grabs me by my shoulders and he says, no, do not go back and pick that up. And he starts telling me what I need to do to heal the race issue in our nation. I start to weep in the dream. I wake up, I've been weeping the whole night. I didn't even realize it. I was weeping in intercession the whole night. My pillow was soaked in tears. I shared the dream with my friend Lou Engel. He began to weep when we were praying. He said, God, give us the interpretation for this dream. I was like, God, remind me. What did Dr. King say to me? And the Lord said to me, William, the white bag with the black handles, that would be the interpretation for your dream. Then I realized the black handles represented how I, as an African-American, as a black man, had handled my white baggage. God was saying to me, William, get rid of your white baggage. You've been carrying it for way too long. I knew what he was talking about because I knew what it was like at 13 years old to be with three of my friends. We're coming out of a convenience store and a carlo full of white guys in Texas chased us for over an hour and a half, called us the N-word, said they were going to shoot and kill us. They were just joyriding. But listen, we were terrified. We didn't even know them. I know what it's like at 19 years old to be uh, stopped by a police officer in, in a in a, in a grocery store and he falsely accused me of shoplifting when he couldn't find anything on me he tried to provoke me into a fight and, and I know what it's like later on in my 30s to get my first house in a nice little suburban area but for the first three months the same police officers would just pull me over just for driving while black I know what that feels like but you know what I've done for every black person I mean sorry for every white person and every police officer in that area I put those three encounters and other stories on them before I ever had any conversations with anybody. That's the devil's diabolical plot. It's Revelation 12 where it says that the devil is a what? The accuser of the brethren. That word accuser is a very interesting word. In the Greek, it comes from the Greek word kategoros. That's where we get the word category. In other words, the diabolical plot of the devil is to get us to categorize, to stereotype each other so that before we can ever have a conversation with one another, we put 
a storyline or a couple of bad experiences on everybody before we ever have an encounter with him. God is saying, he was saying to me, listen, William, get rid of your bitterness. Get rid of your, your unforgiveness. Get rid of your resentment. Get rid of any guilt manipulation. Get rid of your white baggage so you can get into a new vehicle that can bring revival and justice for everybody. But the question for all of us right now is this, what color is your baggage? Get rid of it. Listen, because we need each other. Because only a united church can heal a divided nation. So, I was there at Dexter Avenue Baptist Church. I had this big, thick book called Testament of Hope, 600-page book. And all of a sudden, it falls open on its own to the I Have a Dream speech. Stunned by that, I walked to that old pulpit and I put that book down. And I started reading it like a prayer. And I get to this part in the I Have a Dream speech where it says, I have a dream that one day the sons of former slaves and the sons of former slave owners will be able to sit together at the table of brotherhood. This red hill in Georgia, and I thought, God, whatever happened to the family that owned our family during slavery? For the first time, I started praying for them. But listen, little did I know, Mr. Poema was going to start weaving something together in my life. Had a prayer meeting later on, January 17, 2005, and I meet this guy named Matt. Matt Lockett, please come share. It's good to be with you here at Victory World Church. And I got to say this, it's really good to be here on a red hill in Georgia. It's a good time right now. I believe this is a, a pivotal time for the nation. I think it is a time of divine opportunity. And so you're not here by an accident because what? There are no accidents. Nothing just happens. I think this uh, God of Poema is weaving something right now. And... Uh, we're telling this story this morning because it's not just a story about Will and I. We believe that this is going to help you figure out and choose what storyline you wanna be a part of and how your story is woven in with others and is a part of what God's doing in this nation right now, amen? So the best thing I can do right now is just start right where Will left off. It was January 17, 2005. I'm gonna start there with my story, how it ties in with Will's, but I have to back up a year Actually, exactly one year to the day, it was January 17th, 2004, that my dad unexpectedly passed away. Now, if you've lived through something like that, you know it can really have a, 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 a way of just turning your life upside down. And I was, that's what happened to me. I was a, an adult. I'd been saved for most of my life, but here I found myself as a grown man asking really hard questions like, who am I and why am I here? Listen, now that's not... That's not a question that, that is a sign of weakness. That's something that is good at every stage of life to ask your heavenly father. It doesn't matter if you're 16 or 60, you need to know who the father says you are and why you're here and what is this tailor-made destiny that he's woven together for your life. Think of it this way. At some point, God had a dream and you are the embodiment of that dream. You're the manifestation of the dream of God. That's, I, I don't know, if you don't get anything else that, this morning, take that home with you. That's powerful to think that you are the embodiment of the dream of God. So during this year, after my dad died, something became really important to me. I wanted to know where did the lockets come from, my family? Now that was hard because my dad, even though he's one of 16 siblings, come on, Mamma and Papa. 16 siblings, we couldn't get beyond my dad's grandfather. There had been a loss of records 
And there was a breakdown of really just a loss of the story so that by the time you get to my dad's generation, no one knew where the lockets came from. They were just a bunch of tobacco farmers in Kentucky. So I decided I wanted to find out where we came from. And so I spent that year researching and I hit all the same roadblocks uh, that everyone in my family had ever hit. And I got cousins on top of cousins that had tried this in the past. And I hit all those same roadblocks. And so it was during that time it was kind of a low point from in my life that I had a dream. So we're talking about dreams a little bit this morning. Certainly Dr. King had a dream of his heart and his life. Will shared about having a dream while he was asleep. Do we have any dreamers in the house? You know what I'm talking about? Like when you go to sleep at night and you feel like God's talking to you and pizza doesn't get the credit. All right, that's what we're talking about this morning. So, so I, I went to sleep one night, I had a dream. And uh, I, I won't go into the dream, but it was, it was from somewhere else. This dream didn't bubble up from my day. In this dream, the Lord began to talk to me about how he wanted to shift the nation, specifically ending abortion in America, how he wanted to do that through day and night prayer. And in the dream, I met a man named Lou Engel. So Lou is the gentleman that Will mentioned. It was a friend of his. But three things about this dream disturbed me. One, I didn't know anything about abortion. And maybe you can relate to that. At that point in my life, it just wasn't my focus. I didn't really care to, to know anything about it. Second thing, I didn't know anything about prayer. Now, every Christian thinks they know about prayer until you have to lead a prayer meeting. <laughs> it takes about five minutes to figure out, I don't really know anything about prayer, right? Then you spend the rest of the time talking about your grandma who, with a broken hip, <laughs> praying that God would give her strength to endure the affliction. <laughs> Amen or oh me, you know what I'm talking about. The third thing was I didn't know Lou Engel. Do you understand this? I met Lou Engel before I knew Lou Engel. I met him in this dream. And so this dream, it, it required something of me. So I actually found out there was a real guy named Lou Engel. He was really doing this thing with prayer. And so through a friend of a friend, I got a phone number of somebody who worked with him. And I called them and I, I just thought, you know, I'm just gonna leave this dream there. I'm just gonna leave this right here. Clearly he needs a prophet in his life. So I called him, or I called him and I said, I don't know you and you don't know me, but I had a dream. And he was like, really, what was your dream? He totally took me seriously, which I didn't expect. <laughs> this is weird stuff, right? So I told him the dream and he says, this is very interesting. You've just dreamt exactly what the Lord is sending us to do. We're going to Washington DC to pray for the ending of abortion. Well, now I'm getting worried. This is putting a demand on my life now that I wasn't expecting. And so he said this, he said, we're doing a prayer gathering on the steps of the Lincoln Memorial on Martin Luther King Day. It would be January 17th, 05. Maybe you should come to it. God might have something for you there. What a weird statement. Like, God, do you really want me to take time off work, spend hard-earned money to go all the way across the country to a prayer meeting? And, and, and you start doing the confirmation game? Do you guys play the confirmation game? You know where you like, you, you, you fabricate these conditions, right? That are impossible. And you're like, God, if you do this, then I'll know that it's you talking to me. And even though the Bible says we're not supposed to test him, like God's like, I'm gonna do it anyway. And he does it. And you're like, okay. But if it's really you, I'm gonna need you to do it again. Then he does it again, right? That's what he did with Gideon. So God confirms to me, 
during that time that I was supposed to go to Washington, D.C. So I got my hands on a recording of this guy, Lou Engle, preaching. And I don't remember the message, but he made this one statement that has stuck with me all these years. It, it literally pierced my heart. He said this, what moves you? What is your passion? Stay close to the burning bush in your life. What burns in you and never goes out, when you find something like that, draw close to it and you'll hear your name called. Well, that statement, it pierced my heart because I had just spent a year trying to figure out something about where my family had come from. I didn't know anything about the history of the lockets. And so I had one prayer going to that prayer meeting in DC. God, I wanna hear my name called. That's a really good prayer to pray, by the way. Go home and pray that tonight before you go to bed. God, I need to hear my name called. So I was praying that prayer. I decided to go to Washington, DC and show up at this prayer gathering. So I brought a picture of that meeting. I wanted you to see it. It wasn't a big gathering. It's smaller than you know, the, the gathering here this morning, but the, you can see the Lincoln Memorial there in the background. And uh, if you look on the uh, left side of the screen, that blue sleeve, if you follow that out to the end of the fingertips, you will see a man standing there. That's Will Ford. So the first place that I ever came together with Will Ford was on the steps of the Lincoln Memorial. That's right where Dr. King gave the I Have a Dream speech. And isn't it weird? Two men would be led to that spot by dreams. We'll come back to that later. So I didn't know, I just showed up. Sometimes you just gotta show up. I didn't know, why do we have to pray outside? <laughs> For eight hours in January. <laughs> but I just showed up and so I was there. That night there was a guest speaker uh, at a local church and it was Will Ford and he brought out this kettle and he told the story that you've just heard this morning. And I was a mess that day because it was one year to the day that my father had passed away. And I had ended that year very frustrated. And I'm listening to this man tell this story about this rich spiritual heritage about his ancestors who had prayed and contended for the destiny of this nation. And here I was, I didn't know anything about where I had come from. And I was listening to the story. And for the first time ever, he shared the part that this kettle was handed down to Harriet Lockett who gave it to Nora Lockett, who gave it to Wilford Sr., to Wilford Jr., to Wilford III, the man on the stage. And I was thinking, wait a minute. Now, question, what was the prayer I had been praying? I wanna hear my name called. I had no idea God would be that literal. <laughs> I probably needed it, you know, it's like, ugh. <laughs> so I went up and after the service, and I met Will, and we started comparing notes, and he asked me, how did you Lockett spell their name with one T or two? And I said, two. He said, well, our lockets spelled it with only one T. And where were your lockets from? And we, we said, we don't really know. The best we can guess is Kentucky. But he said, well, our lockets were down in Louisiana. And it, we just thought it was this amazing coincidence, but it was enough that, you know what? We struck up a friendship that night. We prayed together that night and we built this friendship. And then what the Lord ended up doing with me was calling me out of the marketplace. And I have been serving as a full-time missionary in DC for the last 14 years. And during that time, during that time, Will and I have just been running together and this friendship uh, just began to deepen. We became covenantal brothers and I love this man. I love him, he loves me, I love his family. I fight for his dreams, he fights for mine. Guys, I think that's kind of how this is supposed to work. That we would just learn how to love each other well and do life together. 
What I found out is that I, I needed him. He needed me. Our lives are woven together in ways that we can't imagine. And so, so all these years, we've been running together and praying for revival in America, praying for racial healing in this nation, praying for the ending of abortion. So now, I uh, direct this house of prayer in DC and there was a dream that God gave us at the very beginning that's marked us. And I do wanna share this dream because it's, it's a key part of our history. In the dream, we're in a huge building that's filled with courtrooms. And the Lord spoke in the dream and said, either you deal with Roe v. Wade in your courts or I will deal with it in mine. And at the end of this long hall was a huge courtroom and on the door it said Appomattox Courthouse. Now, many of you probably don't know what Appomattox Courthouse is. I usually have to do a little American History 101 because if you're like me, you slept through American History class in high school, right? Okay, so here's the deal. We fought the Civil War from 1861 to 1865. And at the end, General Robert E. Lee was cut off in Richmond, Virginia. There in Richmond and Petersburg, his army was cut off and the Union Army broke through and began to pursue them. So Lee was retreating across the state of Virginia and he gets to the middle of the state to a place called Sailor's Creek. And it was there that he could go no further. He had to turn his cannons around and in the front yard of this farmhouse, Lee fought his last battle. And then on April 9th, 1865, he signed unconditional surrender at a place called Appomattox Courthouse nearby. So Appomattox is a key historical location for us, uh, uh, for this nation. What it represents is the end of the Civil War. It represents the end of the bloodiest thing this nation's ever known. 720,000 lives were lost in that. Brother against brother trying to rip each other to shreds. And so for God to take that historical language and pluck it out and inject it into an issue of injustice in this generation, we take that very seriously. So for all these years, maybe you can understand this prayer. We've said, God, we don't wanna have to go back to another Appomattox. That's why we're praying for the courts now. So that dream marked us and we've been contending for the courts for 15 years. Now, fast forward. Lou Engel was gonna do one of these large prayer gatherings in the state of Virginia. And he said this, he said, if we're gonna do it in Virginia, we have to go pray at Appomattox. We hadn't been there. So we went to that place and we prayed in the room where Lee surrendered. It was powerful, praying for the nation in that room. And as we were leaving, we went into the visitor's center and Lou and I stepped up to a bookcase. We were standing side by side. And Lou grabs the first book on the, off the shelf that catches his eye. What is it about God who likes to do this weird thing? Grabbing books and making them fall open. So he, he grabs this book and he opens it to the first random page. And I wanna show you an image of it. It was this page, the last shot, the Battle of Lockett's Farm. And he asked me, what is this? I had no idea. So I bought the book, began to study it. You can look it up for yourself. That last battle that Lee fought was in the front yard of a family named Lockett. And I'm thinking, this has to mean something. Like I'm having another holy moment where I'm hearing my name called. Well, it was about that time that my older brother got the breakthrough on our genealogy, first time ever in our family history. And he called me and he said, you know, I got us all the way back to 1645. We came in as settlers through Virginia. And I said, have I got a Virginia story for you? And I started to tell him about the end of the Civil War and he stops me and he says, wait a minute, that's not that place down by Sailor's Creek, is it? I said, that is exactly where it is. He said, oh, I just found the documents on it. That was our family. So think about that for just a moment. After years of praying the Appomattox dream, 
we found out that the last battle of the American Civil War that ended slavery happened in my family's front yard. Now I have a photo of it, I want you to see this. That's the Lockett Farmhouse. It's been preserved, it still stands today. It's riddled with bullet holes still. And there's the historic marker in the front yard that says, here Lee fought his last battle. That was it, guys, that's the spot. So I went there and I, I, I went into the living room. The man that lives there invited me in and I was stunned when framed and hanging on the wall was the Lockett genealogy and I get out my brother's research. It's exactly the same. This was my family. And so I began to, to add, or he asked me like, how much do you know about your family? I said, well, not much. And he said, you know, some left and went to Kentucky. But some were in the deep South, some were very involved in very significant historical events. But then he said this, some left and went to Louisiana. And then he said, in some cases, the handwritten ledgers of the census stuff, that they misspelled the name and accidentally dropped one of the T's. And I'm thinking, wait a minute. Should anything surprise me at this point, but I'm thinking, wait a minute, this can't be true. And so I gather up this information and I go down to Dallas and Will, would you come back up and join me please? And let's share what we found out. There's this information with us. And actually, we just talked and prayed and cried for hours. But he flew back and he's a researcher. I'm a researcher. We don't like flaky stuff. So we try to poke holes in this for three or four months. And I was reminded that I was uh, actually had a genealogist do research for me back in 2002. He found a man named Isaac Lockett in the 1870 census. He's 90 years old in that census. Five years after slavery, more than likely, this is the place where he was a slave and he was there in Lake Providence. But in that document, he said he was originally from Virginia. Slaves would be you know, sold off to family members or, or wheeled off to people sometimes in wheels. So that could have been how he got there. And sure enough, that's pretty much what happened. So another year goes by with us doing research. And here's what we learned through our own empirical research. We learned that it was Matt's family that owned my family where this kettle pot came from. So think about this. Here's my family praying for the ending of slavery. They're in Lake Providence. Why Lake Providence? Maybe the lake of God's providence is way deeper and wider than we know. Maybe the family that we're born into, maybe the color of our skin, maybe the places where we live, maybe providence is overseeing all of those things. They're in Lake Providence praying for the ending of slavery and all up at the farmhouse of the people used to own them, slavery comes to end in their front yard. But then because he's the God of the past and the future, he weaves two family lines together. Matt and I, so we can war against injustice in our day and cry out for awakening in our time. Isn't that powerful? So, then we learned something else that was really interesting. We learned that uh, there there were these two people, Napoleon Lockett and Mary Lockett, they were in Matt's family. They were like the Southern Bell aristocrats and they were uh, very well known amongst the Confederacy. Napoleon Lockett had like 126 slaves himself. Between he and his 11 children, they owned about 1,000 slaves. But his wife, Mary, didn't like the fact that the Confederate White House didn't have its own flag. So she took it upon herself to design the very first Confederate flag. She hand-sewed it in her house with her friends and designed the very first. In other words, she was the Betsy Ross for the Confederacy. Yeah, for Jefferson Davis, her friend. So that is the flag that she designed. It's called the Stars and Bars. So the Confederate flag came through Matt's family, <laughs> all right? So the, 
But then they thought, well, that flag looks too much like the Union flag on the battlefield. Let's come up with a Confederate battle flag. So then they came up with this design, which we're more familiar with. But think about it. Through the same family where the flag of rebellion was raised up in our country because of the prayers of black Christian slaves and white Christian abolitionists, even in the same family, we'll talk about that in a second, through the same family where the flag of rebellion was raised up because of prayer, listen, next slide, the flag of surrender went up in their front yard because of prayer. Right? Yeah, uh, what's important to understand is that it wasn't this story that connected Will and I. We didn't know any of this at the beginning. It took about a decade of praying together and doing life together before God revealed any, any of this stuff. stuff. Yep. Honestly, if we'd known this at the beginning, <laughs> we wouldn't have made it. It, it, it would have either destroyed us or worse, we would have perverted it. Yep. But God's, after 10 years of praying together, God says, all right, I'm gonna lift the curtain on this a little bit, show you something I've been working on for a while. And so it comes up and ah, it's terrifying when we begin to see the intricacy and the attention to detail of God's hand over each and every one of our lives and how he weaves us together. And so once this began to get revealed, it seemed like there was no end. So you can imagine how I felt when I discovered that my connection to the story is to that of the slave owner. That was hard, folks. That was painful to make that discovery. But then when we go back a little bit further, we find out about another man in my family named Daniel Lockett. And when revival came to Virginia in the previous generation, he became a Methodist circuit rider. Now, I love the story of the circuit riders and the Methodists. At that time, they weren't just carrying the gospel to the frontier, they were also abolitionists. And so in their horse saddlebags, along with their Bibles, they also carried a thing called a manumission form, which was a legal document that allowed you to set your slaves free. So how'd you like to be a part of that altar call? That you come forward to receive the gospel of Jesus Christ, and then you are told that it is for, for freedom that Christ sets you free, and you're given the opportunity to also set your slaves free at the same time. Listen, we know that is exactly what happened because when you, when you study history, everywhere the circuit riders went, the population of freed slaves exploded in this nation. You know what that means? That means that the gospel has the power not only to transform the human heart, but also to reshape the world around us. That's powerful. It's amazing you think about it. So, yeah, Matt, Matt had in his family, of course, people who owned slaves. We also had this revivalist and abolitionist in his family, and even folks who taught slaves how to read and write. We'll talk about that in a second. I have people in my family, of course, that done things we're not proud of, have family members in prison. I've done stuff that I'm not proud of. But listen, we have these folks back here who were contending for revival and the ending of slavery. In other words, in all of our families, we have these dominating themes called generational curses and generational blessings. They represent these dominating themes or storylines. And what God is shouting to America right now is this. What storyline do we want to be a part of? The healing or the hurt? The blessing or the curse? What storyline do we want to be a part of? Let me share this last little bit with you. Give you an example of what we mean. So after the Civil War ended, Will had mentioned it was illegal for slaves to learn how to read and write. But guess what? After the war, it still wasn't very popular. So they would do it in secret because they feared consequences. Well, one night there's a former slave there at the Lockett homestead trying to teach her son how to read and write. And in walks Lucy Lockett, one of my ancestors. She catches them red-handed. And I like to explain it this way. I believe that Lucy chose a different storyline in that moment because instead of consequences, she says to the mother, no, what you've chosen to do is very wise. And so she actually takes up tutoring this young boy in how to read and write. And we know that story 
because he recorded it in his autobiography. That young boy was Robert Russell Moton. He replaced Booker T. Washington as president of Tuskegee Institute. And in 1922, if you could put up the next image, he gave the dedication speech of the Lincoln Memorial, where 41 years later, Dr. King would stand on that very spot and give the I Have a Dream speech. And 41 years after that, Will and I would meet on that exact same spot. Isn't that amazing? So think about this. Think about this. This happened to two guys who started praying and then began to have dreams, which led them to the Lincoln Memorial on MHL Celebration Day, to the very spot where Dr. King said in his I Have a Dream speech, I have a dream that one day the sons of former slaves and the sons of former slave owners will be able to sit down together at the table of brotherhood. So maybe the dream speech wasn't poetry. Maybe it was prophecy. Maybe there's a dream king called the king of kings whose father is still answering his prayer. Father, I pray that there will be one so that your glory can come so that the world will believe. Maybe God hasn't forgotten about the prayers of your grandmother and your grandfather and Nemo and them. And I, you know what I'm talking about? There's still hope for America. And we came to a Red Hill in Georgia to say there's still room at the table. As you heard at the end of that inspiring anointed testimony, Will Force had preacher come up here and say something. So that is my cue. And all I can say is, wow, go God. God, we marvel at the work of providential bringing together healing and reconciliation in the lives of these men to form their bond of Christ that is so beautiful to watch. And, you know, what we want is to see what God did in their lives to do in millions of lives. And so from their testimony, I want you to take away three things today. And that is, number one, as they said, pray that God would call your name. God, call my name to some great task, some great mission in reconciling the world to you and reconciling the world to one another through you. And then you learn from the video how important it is to seek relationships with people that are different than you, especially different ethnicities, that you could learn and experience the beauty of God. These men, apart from how the story ended, experienced great joy by coming together, risk-taking, getting to know one another. And the third thing I, I know you picked up in the video is our obligation, our joyful duty to add prayer after prayer after prayer right now in 2020 to all the generations of people, God's people, men and women who've been praying before us, even those who are in heaven now, all of these prayers that are in front of the throne of God, we add to them even through this morning's prayer time together. Would you pray now with me? Father, we have heard of your fame. We stand in awe of your deeds, Lord. Repeat them, please, in our day. In our time, make them known. In wrath, remember mercy. Yes, Lord, we deserve wrath because of our sin as a nation. We've seen the deterioration of conscience, family, government, and church. We deserve to be left alone in the mess that we've created. But we plead for mercy. Would you bring glory to yourself by giving mercy to a nation that does not deserve it? 
And then, Lord, perform deeds of salvation and reconciliation that will produce awe in our hearts over what you've done. We want to see people experience the saving, healing power of Christ the Messiah. May he turn many from sin to salvation. And may we see him through the working of his church by his spirit. Work, as he said in the scriptures, to proclaim good news to the poor, freedom for the prisoners, and sight for the blind. May the glory of God once again cover the earth as water covers the sea. May thousands of people from all backgrounds and cultures and ethnicities walk together across the bridge of Christ into the kingdom of God. And may your will be done on earth as it is in heaven so that justice would roll like a river and righteousness would flow like a never-ending stream. And I make my prayer in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.